Obama fundamentally believes in the right of business to oppress. That's the problem. You know, Goldman Sachs and what they did in the financial crisis was the executives at Goldman Sachs committed fraud, rampant fraud. And Senator Carl Levin submitted complaints to the Justice Department saying these guys committed fraud. Senator Levin is a good lawyer, right? There were whistleblowers that said that Jamie Dimon committed fraud. These guys committed fraud and they didn't prosecute. And then Obama comes out and says, Jamie Dimon and Lloyd Blankfein are smart businessmen. He says that, you know, they're smart businessmen and respects them. They're not smart businessmen. They are autocrats who made a lot of money stealing from people. Obama and Geithner protected their right to oppress. So Matt himself, our guest today, is pretty depolarizing. He really sits kind of in between two parties, just working on his stuff, not really linked to either. Notice, in fact, how throughout this conversation, he interprets businesses as political entities. I found that pretty fascinating. So really what we're doing here today, and I really hope we can have Matt back to do this more, is we're just kind of burrowing into his brain, this clearly very smart guy who's asking questions that are pretty uncomfortable for both parties. So if Matt himself is depolarizing, then this episode is mostly just an exercise in hearing him out, trying to see the world the way that he sees the world. As a result, no matter which presidents, politicians, or policies you hold dear, at some point in this interview, you're probably going to hear something critical about them, which is great, right? That's what we're doing. So, without further ado, enjoy this conversation. So, Matt Stoller, thank you for joining us. Can you give us a little background on your education, your work, etc., so that people know who they're listening to? Sure. Thanks for having me. So I'm Matt Stoller. I graduated in 2000, got a degree in history, and I've done policy work in Congress for six years. Now I'm at the New America Foundation in the Open Markets Division. So I think a lot about uh, political economy and uh, monopoly power. Uh, When I was in Congress, I worked on Dodd-Frank, the bailouts, some national security stuff, a bunch of monopoly questions. Federal Reserve stuff. So I have some exposure to the political process. Um, and then before I worked in Congress, I was a, I did campaigns and elections and a bunch of consulting for foundations and so on and so forth. I've also done some TV. And so I have um, kind of a weird career, but one that moves in and out of, of policymaking. But really what I do is I think about and research history to try to understand why particularly congressional history and uh, the relationship of the Democratic Party to concentrated financial power to try to understand kind of what went wrong. So you're like, you're the guy that Bernie Sanders ought to be turning to right now as he tries to reinvigorate Democrats against monopolized money, basically. I think Bernie's doing fine. You think he's doing fine? I I don't think think he needs advice. I think he knows what he's doing. Oh, okay, cool. But you're nonetheless the guy with the experience to be working on that with him where he, yeah, I mean, I look, I look at, at politics and I'm not, I'm not a particularly left wing um, person and and I'm not particularly partisan either. My sense is that the heart of social justice in America flows through its industrial structures and our political institutions, which is something that people are kind of coming to realize. And so what I think about is uh, what's the history here? Um, How do you build 
political power for social justice within commercial institutions on behalf of independent businesses, on behalf of people who, you know, who want to live lives of, of dignified citizenship, have access to credit, have access to transportation systems, have access to technology. Um, all of those questions are, are both questions of social justice and they're also questions of political economy and industrial organization. And that's what I think about. And it's not a it's not a particularly partisan question because, um, you know, you have pro-monopolists, pro-concentration people and anti-monopoly people in both parties. You started off by saying something that sounded really loaded and, and really interesting, which is that social justice in America flows through our industrial systems, our policies, our whatever. So just can you break that down a little bit more? What, what you mean by that? You mean people's desire for social justice is in them, but the way that Americans actually accomplish it is through these policies and infrastructure? Let me just tell you a story. Okay. So we're all familiar with Harvey Milk, right? Who is a, um, the first out elected official in, in San Francisco. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's sort of an extraordinary story. Um, I had people, you know, come out, uh, of the closets so they could fight an anti-gay ordinance, but also did a bunch of other interesting things when he was uh, an elected official and then was assassinated. And, uh, you know, it's an amazing story, right? But what people don't think about is that, you know, what he did before he was elected uh, and the way he built his political power was by running a camera store on the ca- on Castro Street, right? So he runs this independent camera store, can run it however he wants, and it becomes the basis of a community, of a neighborhood, mm. right? And people organize there and they hang out there and they, you know, they buy cameras or fix his cameras, whatever he did. And that was the neighborhood political center. But it was an independent commercial business. And it was protected by pricing laws that constrained chain stores. So you had a whole bunch of small businesses, including that one that existed, that provided the civic leadership for our culture. Okay, so then Harvey Milk gets elected from the camera store. So today, right, if somebody wants to run on some sort of controversial political question, well, they, they're not going to necessarily be able to have a business like you could in the 1970s because those laws have changed. So the question is, could Harvey Milk have run for office as an out official if he were a manager at Best Buy or if he mm. were a middle manager at Amazon? The answer is probably no. Yeah. So that's that's just an example. Yeah, there's something unique. And and when you refer to he had a camera store in the Castro district, that is how the Castro district became the Castro district in San Francisco. That's one of the reasons it became a cultural center for the gay community. So that's a part of what you're saying, too. It's not just small businesses. Yeah. yeah. So and that small business was protected. Yeah, because nobody nobody can tell you. So Louis Brandeis, who was a Supreme Court justice and kind of like a founding father, one of the founding fathers of sort of 20th century industrial America, you know, he basically was like, look, we don't want to have a nation of clerks, right? Mm-hmm. We, we don't want to transition from a nation of independent tradesmen to a nation of clerks, right? Political dignity, citizenship, democracy comes from the ability of people to be able to be full citizens without being dominated politically by violence or commercially. And when you forget about the entire commercial sector, as I think both parties have kind of done, they don't think about big business as political institutions or small business as political institutions. I mean, there's some echoes of rhetoric about how much we love small business, but there's not actually a lot of focus on that. When you forget about that, you forget about democracy. 
right? Because mm. it, it is that. Like the Castro became the Castro because you had a lot of people who could start small businesses and, you know, run them however they wanted for whoever they wanted. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a lot of exam- other examples. One example I'm particularly enamored with right now is something called the, the FinCEN regulations for uh, network TV. This is called the Financial Interest in Syndications Rules that were put in place in 1970 by the Nixon Federal Communications Commission. And what these rules did is they said, if you're a network TV channel, and I guess there were three at the time, you are not allowed to own the um, – a financial interest in the television shows that you put on in primetime. You have to buy the shows from independent production companies or Hollywood studios or whatever. Because before then, the networks had vertically integrated and they had started to basically put forward their, they would make their own shows and they could keep the syndication revenue from that. It was a concentrated, a very concentrated industry. So the FCC comes out with FinCEN rules and now all of a sudden these guys have to buy shows from independent producers and the independent producers at Hollywood studios can play these networks off each other. So if you have a good idea for a show and ABC wants to buy it, but they're like, we want you to change the show in this way or that way, you could go to the other two networks. And this happened. So they, they put this FinCEN rules out. And in 1971, you start to see this explosion of, of independent production content. It's a bunch of old white guys that put the rule in place. Yeah. But because of the FinCEN rules, the independent production houses and, um, and studios produce the most diverse television shows that we had ever seen up to that point. So we're talking about shows like The Jeffersons, Mary Tyler Moore, Sanford and Sons, The Cosby Show, uh, Moonlighting, uh, All in the Family, the first out character on TV. And these are these are shows that were produced by independent production houses. And like as an example, you know, The Cosby Show, Cosby was a very famous comedian and the network wanted him to do a show uh, where he did a nightclub act, but he was able to leverage the power that he had from these rules to just show a, uh, a black family where there was that the head of the family was a doctor, right? Yep. It, it was the, the husband, not the head of the family, but the husband was a doctor, right? And uh, that, that's a big deal, right? Nobody said you have to have a certain number of, of black people on TV or gay people on TV or whatever. They just said you are not allowed to concentrate power in the hands of these, you know, three uh, TV networks hmm. anymore. And as a result, what you saw was this flowering and diversity of culture. So when you're talking about kind of social justice and you're talking about like in this case, it's entertainment or media, these stories that we tell ourselves, those are not just questions of, of culture, right? Those are questions of industrial organizational policy, right? And if you're forgetting about how you run these uh, institutions, these corporations, and you're not thinking about whether they have to compete, who has power within them, how the money flows, how the markets are structured, then you are not thinking about democracy and you are not thinking about social justice in any real way. The question that comes to mind is how do we, I mean, that just seems obviously true to me. There really doesn't seem to be a reason to disagree with the- I know, it's really it's really weird, right? Yeah. Because it's like, you know, you discover this stuff and you're like, wait a second, this is all really obvious and true. Yeah. And then there's no hook into the political world, right? It's just weird, right? Like, it's just like, people are like, oh, that's super interesting. That's great. Oh, what's Nancy Pelosi doing? And you're just like, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is like really weird. Well, so where I wanted to go with it is, is how do you make sure that people from both sides of the aisle hear that? Like, is is there any defending 
Well, I would say I would say first you have to start with either side yeah. of the aisle here. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so okay, but maybe we can take this tack then. So okay, if we agree that well, let me let me let me cut you off for a second. Sure. So if you look at the Republican platform for 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the interesting – so there were anti-monopoly provisions in both party platforms this year for the first time since uh, 1988. Which is the new one? Which is the one that didn't have it until this year? Uh, 1992. Sorry. I mean so which, Clinton, which party added it this year? Both parties. Oh, they – neither of them had it four years ago. Last time and then both oh, parties added. Oh, interesting. Now, now the, the Democrats specifically added an antitrust plank. They also – they added a bunch of other stuff too. They added a, a call for Glass-Steagall. The Republicans add, did not add an antitrust plank. They did put antitrust in there, but it was, it was sort of a weird part of it. Um, but they did put Glass-Steagall in there. And they also put something in that no one noticed, uh, which was a provision that said that big ag companies could not – that there needed to be protections for ranchers and farmers against big ag companies that were trying to suck up the data about their land. Hmm. And so the, the proprietary commercial information owned by farmers who are part of the Republican coalition, they said, we need to protect you from big ag and big data. Now, that's not seen. It was not seen as an anti-monopoly provision, but it actually is an anti-monopoly provision. Yeah. So when you say, like, how do you like what I, I was sort of joking, I get either party to hear it. But in fact, both parties actually have core uh, industrial organizational elements. Um, that's what a lot of their their the component coalition parts of both parties kind of really want out of them. And um, so you see it, you see it. It's just that the political dialogue today in terms of the people that think about themselves as professional political operatives or that do elections or the people that watch MSNBC or Fox News or whatever, they don't pay attention to this stuff because it's not seen as political. Are you saying the voters or the people who work on elections, the pundits, I'm all sure of I'm talking about the political, the political class that sits between the voters okay. and the politicians. They don't think about this at all. So when I said, talked about the FinCEN rules and you were like, that's beautiful. It's like, you tell that to somebody who runs elections and they're like, that's really interesting and great. Now, how do we send direct mail to the voters based on like whatever the the polling you know issues yeah. are? Yeah. Um, or, or and like you could see it in 2010. You know, I was working in, ha- in the House in 2009, and I was like, we're just going to get slaughtered. I was working for a Democrat, and we're like, we're going to get slaughtered. And all these people were like, what are you talking about? We're passing so many bills, and like people love that, you know. And it's like some guy was like, man, we we passed. Every bill we put up, we pass and sign in the law. Of course, they're going to reelect us. And I was like, you're crazy. They don't have jobs and they don't, you know, they're getting foreclosed on. And there was there was no connection between the actual underlying policy impacts of governing on people's lives and the elections. Mm. They didn't even poll on foreclosures. They just didn't poll on it, which is insane. Right. And that's because they don't pay attention to industrial organizational policy. Right. Foreclosures is a clear example of concentrated financial power, at least in this in this case. In 2009, the Democrat in the House you were working for did not do any polling about foreclosures or. Well, no, no, I'm not talking about him. I'm talking about the Democratic like the, the DCCC, the entire establishment. Most Seriously? of the pollsters, they did nothing. They did. There was one study. There was a special election when Scott Brown won. Uh, a special election in Massachusetts. And there was one study done on how neighborhoods that were foreclosed on had some changes in voting uh, turnout. But really, there was very little other than that. And I remember 
you know, canvassing in 2010 in the district, and it was Orlando, and we would you'd go to a cul-de-sac, right, with a bunch of our voters, and like literally every single house was padlocked. Yeah. Because they'd all like, and it's like, dude, we we just foreclosed on all our voters, and there was literally no connection between that and like people running elections. Like another example is that in 2016. So Democrats lost Iowa by a bigger margin than they lost Texas this year, right? Which is crazy. Wow. Right? That's a big that's a big deal. Now, why is that? Well, the answer is because in Iowa, the rural counties swung to Trump. Like this was an election where the rural areas really swung hard to Trump. Yeah. And the reason is because their agricultural prices are in a depression right now. So you don't see that, right? There's no one like if if Obama violates some civil liberty or, or Trump does something on ethics or whatever, people freak out, right? In the there's the MSNBC covers it and like the New York Times, there are all these entities that cover it and they're like and the political operative world, like they have to deal with it. Like it's put in their face and they're like, we have to come out with a position on this. Right. And so they're they're naturally paying attention to those communities and they're responsive to those communities. But in twenty sixteen, when you have this major collapse of, of agricultural prices, milk, dairy is in a really bad depression. There was nobody screaming to the Democrats, you have to do something about this because we've simply not paid attention to those uh, communities for a really long time. And we don't incorporate, I mean, farms are, are businesses, right? They're commercial yeah. institutions. So we don't pay attention to them and they don't pay attention to us. And, and they don't even think of their businesses necessarily political anymore. So all of a sudden in 2016, the day after the election, we wake up and we're like, wow, all of these people voted uh, against the Democrats or changed over to Trump. And why is that? What happened? And there had been no warning. But if we had been paying attention to the rural areas and to the commercial heartbeat of those rural areas and seeing the, the concentration of power in the hands of big ag that was pressing down on these farms and, and it paid attention to the changes in the pricing of agricultural commodities, we would have been able to make better policy. You know, they wouldn't have all flipped to, to Trump, um, or at least that's that's kind of my yeah. theory. But that fundamental connection between what voters vote on and how policymaking works, that connection is is broken, and it's broken because we don't the, – our, the political class does not understand or pay attention to industrial organization. Monopoly. They just don't pay attention to it. So that may- <laughs> So that makes me think of two different things. One is you are increasingly sounding like an Old Testament prophet here and your work must be very frustrating and lonely at times. <laughs> and, number, and, and number two, there's actually kind of a beautiful opportunity there, though, I think for voters or listeners here to think about. So when you're talking about big ag and you're saying the Democratic Party ignored the concerns of individual farmers over big ag, I immediately think of one of my like most conspiratorial Bernie leaning buddies who I love greatly, who I know when he listens to this will like get fired up. Right. But he's, he's a Bernie guy, but he can go, Oh, it's beautiful to me. How nonpartisan what you're saying right now is because there's just no reason that any Republican or Democrat voter would not want the individual farmer to be protected against big agriculture. I mean, maybe a handful of Republican elites who want unfettered business. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it, you know, you're right. I mean, the thing is funny is that when like, sometimes I'll be, you know, talking to people or, you know, on Twitter or whatever, and people will be like, you know, that conservative, I don't agree with everything he's saying, but he makes some really good points. Or sometimes people are like, what you're saying sounds really interesting, but are you a Democrat or Republican? Hmm. Right. 
And it's because the tradition that I'm talking about is a tradition that is, you know, goes back 200 years. It's democratic republicanism. And um, it is essentially an argument that we should not live in an aristocracy, whether that aristocracy is brought to you by uh, big government yeah. or, or big business, and which essentially are the same are the same thing. Yeah. Like, you know, if you look at originally the libertarians, right, if you go back to like the late the 1940s, like the Hayek types, they were very anti-monopoly and they changed in the 1950s. And now we have a very pro-concentration libertarian world. But the libertarians, they feared monopoly. They thought monopoly would inevitably lead uh, to more government. And the Democrats, you know, the populists, they feared monopoly as well because they saw in the 1880s and 1890s, they saw monopoly power crush farming communities. Those were their people. The populists were a real political movement that were small businesses that ran farms that were crushed. And they also saw the um, northern industrialists, big business uh, come in and align with Southern conservatives to establish Jim Crow, right? Mm. To break a multiracial movement against monopoly. So the political economy and industrial organization and concentrated financial power, you know, these are, are fundamental to American history. And this tradition is incredibly powerful. So when you hear me talking about it, right? I sound, people are like, oh, wow, that's really compelling, right? But I'm not making this stuff up. I'm drawing from a 200-year tradition, yeah. 300 years, whatever. I mean, it, it goes back, you could go back to Roman law if you want. But like the basic tradition that, that is so powerful that's in all of our DNA but has not really been talked about in the last 30 or 40 years. You see Bernie is like an echo of it, and it's really compelling when he talks about it. You know, Elizabeth Warren sort of talks about it, and even Trump, I mean – Trump talks about it. You know, he has a populist. He uses populist rhetoric. You know, po you know, the evil twin of populism is authoritarianism. Yeah. Right. It's not that he is for democracy, but he does understand that corporations are political institutions. Right. And he does talk about it that way, which is something that Democrats and Republicans haven't done for for a really long time. So this is a perfect transition into how I heard of you. You did a series of tweets on the carrier deal where Trump sort of elbowed carrier, the uh, air conditioning and heater manufacturer to keep 5,000 jobs or whatever in the United States. So I want to talk about that for a little bit. Can you just first give us the lay of the land, like for the people who weren't paying attention to that story, the basic facts? So last, I think it was last March before the election, there were a bunch of workers at this plant that makes furnaces and they all got laid off or, or they were told there was an announcement that the plant was going to be moved to Mexico. And somebody had a camera in the room when the management came in and announced this. And so there was this viral video of like, it was basically like the blue collar version of office space, right? Where a management nice. consultant comes in and is like, yeah, we're going to, we're going to move all these jobs for international competitiveness, blah, 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 blah. To Mexico, and you're gonna next year. You're gonna spend your time training your replacement, and then we're gonna lay you off. And oh my gosh, the people were like horrified. They were like angry and shouting. And the guy was like, "Hey, hey, stop shouting! There are people here who need to have the information that I'm gonna give you." Like it was everything about it was just like condescending and awful, right? So the the video goes viral, and Trump comes out and he says, "This is outrageous. 
we need to slap a tariff on on the furnaces that Carrier makes. He says calls it air conditioning, but air conditioners, but whatever. It's not. So it becomes an issue in the political campaign. It essentially becomes a stand-in for all of the bad economic policies that have been used to decimate the middle class for the last 40 years. Yeah. So trade with China and NAFTA going back, you know, globalization, uh, offshoring in, in earnest really – you could go back a really long time. But the early 80s is really when it started to devastate um, wholesale communities in the United States. But Trump used Carrier as a stand-in for this. So after the election, he wins. And um, he negotiates a deal with Carrier, which is owned by United Technologies. It's a big defense contractor. And the deal is that they're going to keep, I forgot what it was, 800 jobs or something like that out of the 1,200 or 1,400 that are supposed to move. They're going to keep 800 in the, uh, the United States and um, three, 400 of them are going to move to Mexico. And they don't talk to the union head. The announcement is made on TV uh, as opposed to told to the workers first. Yeah. Uh, it's, not, it's not even finalized. There are some small tax breaks that are given to Carrier that are from the local Indiana Economic Development Agency. But essentially, Trump probably, this is probably what happened. He just probably went to Carrier at United Technologies and said, look, I'm going to cut taxes on all corporations. So you're going to do really well under a Trump administration. But if you don't do this, if you don't make me look good, I'm going to cut off some of your defense contracts hmm. and, um, or implied that, yeah. you know, you don't have to say it. And so carrier made the deal, but this is part of a series of deals that Trump is making, right? So today he announces Ford announces that they're not going to move production of some, some vehicle to Mexico like they had planned. And, um, Trump, cut a deal, I think, with the guy who owns SoftBank, which owns Sprint, saying they're going to bring 50,000 jobs to the United States. Trump has attacked Lockheed Martin for price overruns on an F-35. This bid cost like a trillion, 1.5 trillion, so some enormous sum of money. Uh, Today, he attacked General Motors for saying they were going to move some auto production to Mexico. What he's doing is he's, he's saying that these corporations are political institutions and as political institutions they need to pay attention to the boss and the boss is Trump Mm. now he's not saying I'm going to make you do good things for workers I'm going to make you do good things for America but he's saying I'm going to make you do the thing that I want you to do and you're going to make a lot more money if you do it but what I want you to do right now is to make announcements that you're going to either keep jobs in the U.S. or bring jobs to the U.S. We'll see if any of that, you know, there's any follow through on that. But what's important to understand here is that it's a hell of a lot more than Obama did. Obama laughed at the carrier people who asked him if he could do something to keep their jobs in the U.S. He just said, no, I, you know, I, I, anyone who says they could do that is lying to you. The jobs are going to go to Mexico or they're going to get automated. Hmm. And that's um, not true. There's nothing inherent about either of those things. But okay, so, so that, I mean, that's, that's, yeah, that's like, that's uh, helpful. So say a little bit yeah. about that. You're saying it's not true that the jobs will either go to Mexico or be automated. And yet that is almost every single think piece I read in the Economist or the times or the wall street journal or the Washington post basically, you know, includes some line somewhere about how the jobs are never coming back. Automation is the new, Uh, will be the new outsourcing and Trump might have a few years here where it looks like he's saving jobs, but on a 20 year arc, everybody is screwed in the manufacturing world. What do you say to that, to all those, you know, million? Well, I mean, look, we've been dealing with automation since the 1790s. Hmm. 
right? I mean, all the jobs have been about to disappear for 200 years, mm-hmm. yeah. right? So it's just like, it's just bullshit, right? And it, it sounds, you know, compelling, but it's an ideological statement. And the other thing is that automation is not necessarily more efficient. It can be more efficient. It's often more efficient, but it's also a political act. Mm. When you automate something, you are de-skilling people, right? You're changing their ability to offer their labor or not offer their labor. So sometimes you might do it just so you don't have to deal with other political agents, aka workers, like, right? Like that are unionized, for instance. Unionized or not. You've been to like a CVS or, or one of those drugstores where they like, they now have those automated checkout machines. We don't have them in Washington state yet. Well, they're super oh, annoying, just at, right? at grocery go, stores, we have them here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, but you know how like half the time you use it and it's like, call an assistant. They're like annoying. Now I'm just talking about how much I don't like this. But but, um, anyway, the point here is that these are political decisions, right? In the 19th century, before the 1930s, you had global cartel arrangements of big business and they decided that they wanted to have tariffs and tariffs were a way of protecting their own profits and their own ability to control and regulate the commerce of the United States. But also you had um, workers who supported those tariffs because it protected their wages from differentials, um, labor differentials. Tariffs just being additional taxes applied to particular goods that come in or out of the country. Like if you wanted to import aluminum into the United States, there was one aluminum maker here called Alcoa. And if you wanted to import it, you had to pay a tariff. What would happen is that the Democrats would say to the workers, hey, you know, we will help you earn more money and stand up against these big business trust guys. And the big business trust guys and the Republicans would say, we're going to protect you behind um, walls of tariffs, which will keep your business strong and keep you at high wages. And it actually worked prior to the 19 early 1930s. You know, labor was a contested political group. And in the, in the 19th century, the a lot, labor often went for the industrial labor went for Republicans or, you know, farmers went for Democrats. So these are these are just political decisions. Yeah, and your point is just there's nothing to. in stone either about what automation will do to jobs, nor is there anything in stone about if rural people will vote Republican if the small guy will align with political party X or Y, it just happens through repeated political decisions or decisions that affect these political commercialized entities. Look, most people are going to be like, well, I don't really buy what you're saying, Matt, because, you know, globalization, you know, it's so much cheaper to produce things abroad and, and, you know, automation is obviously just more efficient, right? So there's, there's a compelling sort of story here about it. And it's hard to rebut it, but the data doesn't back it up. So one of the things that happened this year where you see just extreme amounts of concentrated monopoly power, you see, you know, people talk about automation, like the robots are coming to take all our jobs, but productivity growth is actually negative right now. You actually have dropping productivity. Hmm. So if, if the story of automation were real, you would find that productivity would be increasing dramatically. And so you say, well, we're making so much more with, with fewer workers. We just don't need those workers. But in fact, we're making less with the amount of workers that we have in terms of the time that those workers are spending. So, so you know, look, when you had strong unions and you didn't have as much offshoring in the, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and, and even 70s, you had much stronger productivity growth, right? So there are different ways to make money. 
you can make more money if you if you have your your workers be more productive. If you have strong anti-monopoly policies, you can make more money. You can be more productive. You can have a stronger economy. You just have to make different political decisions. If you put all of the the political decisions in the hands of essentially financiers who run you know companies and are constantly trying to offshore work and subcontract out work, so they don't have to do any management, what you're going to have is is companies that produce a lot of cash, but that are fundamentally inefficient, which is like exactly what Wall Street was in 2008. Or like Boeing. Boeing is a good example. Boeing builds planes, and every year for the last 15 years, they've reduced their workforce. And they're having really significant and had really significant problems in terms of building airplanes. They, they offshore, they tried to outsource the production of some large airplane that they were that they were putting together, and it was a complete disaster. Because you have to act at some level, you actually have to know how to do stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and we don't know that anymore because we put so much of it in China. And they're perfectly, the Chinese are perfectly willing to do the work that we're offshoring so that they can grab the knowledge of how to do that yeah. from us. And then we won't, ha- we don't have that knowledge anymore. So I guess this is the last thing I'll say about it. It's like the way that we think about wealth is fundamentally screwed up. Like the guys at United Technologies are thinking about wealth by saying, well, if we move this heating and cooling division to Mexico, then the numbers on this spreadsheet, which indicate our bank account yeah. are going to change. Yeah. And that's wealth. The numbers on the spreadsheet yeah. that on, on our bank account, that that's what wealth means. But throughout history, wealth means and has meant the ability in this case to heat and cool a building. Okay. It's really cold out right now, and I'm sitting in an apartment where it's warm. Yeah. Right? That's wealth, not the numbers in, in a bank account, the ability to do that. And what they're, So what they're doing is they're transferring the knowledge of how to produce the systems that heat and cool buildings to Mexico over which we do not have sovereignty. Yeah. Now, they think, well, whatever, it's our property because we have title to it in Mexico, but – Who's to say that our current foreign policy arrangements are always going to be the way that they are? Yeah. I don't think anybody can predict that. And that's so it's extremely dangerous to be moving the production of all of these goods and services on which we rely to all of these other other countries with no redundancy. And with with uh, it's just a messed up way to see wealth. It makes me think of that scene in uh, The Wolf of Wall Street. Have you seen that movie? I have. Where Matthew McConaughey's character brings, you know, young Leo up to the bar above or whatever in the building where they work and, and orders the, you know, two martinis every 15 minutes or whatever. And he explains to him the racket of stockbrokership, which is basically like, it doesn't matter which of these companies, no one knows which of these companies is going to do well or do poorly. But every time a client buys or sells it, I get paid. And my job is to keep them buying and selling, and I will keep getting paid. And it's kind of like that is a analogy for what happens if a country sends all of its actual ability to make things to other countries on a larger scale. We just get really good at becoming the stockbroker, and we're letting the money pass through our hands. American consumers, it doesn't matter who they buy their dishwasher from, as long as they buy a dishwasher and I get my little cut from them buying it, I own the 
intellectual property of this brand name or whatever. Right. I mean, it does matter to the individual brand, but on the whole, it just matters that people bought a dishwasher. But eventually, like you're saying, you could imagine a global economic situation wherein it isn't so valuable to just be the stockbroker. Well, once people can make the stuff that you can make and you don't have military hegemony over them, they're going to sort of turn around and say, well, why do we need you anymore? We yeah. don't, we can just establish our own banks, yeah. right? Like at some level, like the British empire, you know, empires fall precisely this reason. They start to think that financial flows are a military power is everything, you know, but fundamentally, you know, you have to think about commercial power as well. And we've, we've stopped doing that. Okay. Um, so you got Trump here to bring right. it back to him and he is exerting the office of the presidency or president electness, yeah. whatever. It's amazing. He's doing this stuff without even being, president. I know it's pretty crazy. <laughs> so he's, it's, well, it's, it's, it just gives you a sense for how little the, the Democrats and the, this president has sought to actually use power. Hmm. Right. Yeah. If, if Trump can do this stuff when he's president elect. Right. And yeah. that's amazing. My argument is there's an ideological problem that Democrats have where they don't believe that concentrated financial power is political. Therefore, they don't use Democratic offices and institutions to actually structure markets and to structure commerce, even though that's what they're elected to do. Bernie showed a big hole in Democratic orthodoxy yeah. basically by pointing that out. Right. That's right. So, okay. But Trump's doing this. And of course, all the liberal think pieces are, this is the end of, well, I guess it seems to me like the liberals, liberal writers and pundits are a little confused about what to do about Trump doing this. Because on the one hand, they're like, wait, aren't the Republicans supposed to be yelling about this? And we don't like Trump. And there is something obviously kind of bullying about this that maybe just strikes people weird or whatever, but it's kind of a weird thing where it's like the, the, the articles are more like How dare you stand up for workers. Yeah. Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> the, the articles are like, I mean, they started off like, okay, that's eight. He only got 800 jobs and look, he got all this political, you know, right. clout from it. And that's true. I mean, but of course, political actions are always symbolic. They, you know, unless it's the new deal, they're not actually, each political decision is not impacting millions and millions of people. So it's funny. And then it turned to, well, hey, GOPers, you guys have been trounced by your own guy and your orthodoxy has been, you know, spat upon. But how are we to think of this? So, I mean, you- well, so the, the Larry Summers comes out and writes an article in the Washington Post that the carrier deal represents the death of capitalism. And the end of the rule of the rule of law. And you see this this <laughs> you guy can uh, just Ron, start laughing immediately if it's going to be that dire of a right. You know. So so Ron Klain, who's who was a he was an advisor to Vice President Biden, and he's a venture capitalist now. He comes out and he says that Trump attacking Boeing for some cost overrun or something. He's like, that's crony capitalism or that's authoritarianism, right? To pick on big business. The Democratic Party is split, right? So you have a bunch of people who are like populists who are saying, well, this is really confusing because Trump is doing these things that are like pro-worker and that's our job. And they don't know how to handle it. Even the the head of the union, the carrier that represents the the carrier workers was like this. He didn't lot like Trump and Trump's lying, but he did get us a bunch of jobs back. He just didn't get as many as he said he'd get. Yeah. He's like, and he did more than Obama ever did. Right. So that's difficult. 
for populists to handle because they don't have a strategy to handle Trump. And the reason they don't have a strategy is because they actually acknowledging, like actually dealing with Trump on a real way would require being economically populist. And that means rejecting Obama. That you have to reject Obama and say Obama did a bad job for eight years and we supported that and we have a credibility problem. And they don't want to do that because yeah. they still don't, you know, it requires challenging some very core beliefs about how you understand yourself and your own politics. What specifically, sorry to cut you off. Uh, Although, so sorry, so you've got just, to, there's the Larry Summers wing that are like outraged, you know, that Trump is picking on, on Boeing, right? Yeah. And then you get the populists that are like, well, we don't care about that, but we don't want to admit that yeah. we supported a guy who was an autocrat in his own way, right? So if you if you want to acknowledge that Obama failed in this area, let's say, what is it exactly that you're acknowledging? Like what specifically in regards to labor and jobs and monopolizing and whatnot? Well, okay, so it's not that he failed, it's that he's ideologically he does not share a populist ideology. He is anti populist. There's two types of freedom in America. There's always been it's the freedom from oppression and the freedom to oppress. Right. You can protect either of them and you can use rights based liberal language on either of them. So, you you know, you would say Trump attacking Boeing is attacking Boeing's freedom to oppress. Right. Boeing has a right to X, Y, Z, D. Right. Versus Boeing is the oppressive agent and or carrier is the oppressive agent and the government needs to protect the workers from that oppression. Mm. Right. So those are those are different ways of understanding Obama fundamentally believes in the right of business to oppress. That's the problem. Hmm. You know, Goldman Sachs and what they did in the financial crisis was the executives at Goldman Sachs committed fraud, rampant fraud. And Senator Carl Levin submitted complaints to the Justice Department saying these guys committed fraud. Senator Levin is a good lawyer, right? There were whistleblowers that said that Jamie Dimon committed fraud. These guys committed fraud and they didn't prosecute. And then Obama comes out and says, Jamie Dimon and Lloyd Blankfein are smart businessmen. He says that, you know, they're smart businessmen and respects them. They're not smart businessmen. They are autocrats who made a lot of money stealing from people. Obama and Geithner protected their right to oppress. That's what they did. So to deal with that, you have to acknowledge it right, at some level, and you have to say that is not what we're going to stand for. We are going to break from that. Now, there's lots of ways to do that without being so explicit. But at a fundamental level, no one, no one has been willing to come out and say that about what the Obama yeah. administration did. They're just like, he wasn't bold enough, or he failed, or any number of other, he didn't stand up against the Republicans or whatever. Anything except he did bad things because he believes in bad ideas. Why would Obama say, not that you can speak totally for him, but why would Obama say that the perpetrators, like the main perpetrators of the 2008 financial crisis were not prosecuted? What would he say to that? I mean, he would say what Eric Holder said, which is we didn't have a case. And if we had had a case, we would have prosecuted them. That's what he would say. Do you believe that? No. They just didn't want to. Hmm. I, I, I think they made it. Um, I mean, there were plenty of, you know, I mean, I've worked on some of this stuff. You know, the, the SEC, they had cases. There was an SEC prosecutor I became friends with who 
was was tasked on the Goldman case. It was a credit instrument called Abacus. And it was a it was a fraud scheme. It doesn't really matter. But this guy was like, we need to go after um, Goldman for doing this. And um, his superiors at the SEC refused to allow them to do a real investigation. And he was like, we did, we did, I had to fight to get them to interview, you know, a few of the people involved in one of these, these trades and even to just get, get them to interview it. And the, the thing is, is the guys who did the trades, right, who made billions of dollars off of this, um, it was a hedge fund and Goldman t- together, they did not think they did anything wrong. They essentially sold a, a security full of subprime mortgages to a, a German bank, lied to the German bank about what was in those credit instruments. And that's illegal, right? You can't do that. But they didn't know that or think that because they were just like, whatever, man, it was a good trade. I'm going to rip your face off. The culture of Wall Street was such that that's not a crime. That's just a good trade. You're just smart, right? So this guy was like, we need to go after that and we need to investigate. And his superiors, the SEC, didn't let him. And they had to read the rationale was, oh, well, we'll be laughed at on Wall Street if we do that. They'll laugh at us, right? Because everybody does it, right? And it's kind of mm-hmm. like, so, so these guys, when these guys say, well, they're smart businessmen, that, they're reflecting the culture, like elite business culture yeah. right now is, that, is set up that way. And, and the, the, this guy's point was, well, if that's the culture, then it shouldn't be, yeah. right? It should be a crime. Now, now the reason that it, was, it would have been an interesting case is because, you know, every financial crisis is different. This one involved things called credit default swaps and weird credit instruments, but they're, they're all essentially the same. It's all essentially using other people's money to gamble in ways that are deceptive. That's basically every financial crisis is that. And the laws are usually written after a financial crisis to make illegal what was done in that last financial crisis, not to make what's illegal in the future financial crisis, because you don't know what's going to happen in the future. People will find some other way to do it. Yeah, right. right. But the laws are are written somewhat broadly. So the laws in the thirties were written to basically say securities fraud is illegal, right? And this is what securities fraud is pretty broad. And so this guy was like, we should be aggressive in the case that we take. Like we should just look at this, even though it's using terms that didn't exist in the thirties, it's basically the same crime. Let's push the envelope legally, which is what you'd have to do in any of these cases. And they said, oh, no, 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 no. This was just a good trade. And so there was like, yeah, sure. There's like some questions about who you go after. There are some, like you could make a case in any particular trial. You could say, well, maybe this isn't quite the best case and we shouldn't prosecute this one or maybe that one, we shouldn't prosecute that one. But the fact is they made that decision in every single case, Hmm. every single case they said, We don't have an evidence and we don't have the case. And they had plenty of whistleblowers and they had plenty of experts saying you can prosecute. And frankly, it does not just a financial crisis. I'm sorry, but when Wells Fargo opens, you know, millions of fraudulent accounts, there are lots of ways of going after those guys. And they just didn't. They didn't do anything to those guys. That's a disgrace. And that was not, and there were no tough calls there. They just didn't want to do it. Now, you could argue prosecutorial discretion. It wasn't necessarily illegal. But the point is, is it was an ideological statement about what they believed the law was. And to them, the law doesn't represent justice. That's just what it is. They just don't believe in justice. It's their legal, they're legalists. Hmm. So... <laughs> I'm just realizing that like the real depolarization going on today is just picking your brain. 
because you, you sit so beautifully in between all of these, uh, calcified positions and you just, you weave in and out of them at will. And I'm just completely delighted with that. So you made me think of something. So Trump and, and, and Trump has billed himself as this, right? I'm the guy who knows how the system works. And so I'm the guy who can fix it. Now, let's go back to the Republican National Convention. You know, there was some really dark ways he said that, which is like, people are getting shot in the streets and I'm the only one who can protect you. And that's clearly false. Yeah, it's autocratic. Yeah. He's, he's, a, he's, you know. Yeah. Which can you define autocrat for us really quick? No, I'm tired right okay. now. So everybody Google it. <laughs> It's, um, I mean, it's, it's basically, it's a dictatorship. Right. Okay. So that's not true. It's not true that crime rates are rising and that he's the only one who can protect you bodily from a gun. That's false. However, you're kind of making the case that it might not be false when he's talking about jobs and financial stuff. Because if you're saying that Obama was unwilling to be a policeman on this kind of large scale monopolization, fraud, et cetera, et cetera. Trump does not seem like he's going to be, I mean, it seems like he'll decide if there's a political value in it for him, but if there is, he seems like the kind of guy who would be like, lock up 12 of those dudes right now. If it won him points with people. He might. I mean, it's hard to know. First of all, there's a difference between, between putting in place democratic structures to allow communities to self-govern, which is the essence of political economy and the essence of the, sorry, which was the essence of the new deal. And that involves things like a strong anti-monopoly policy, regulatory policy, unions, anti-fraud policies, mm-hmm. and banking regulation, and so on and so forth. Like doing that on, a, on an institutional level and having a guy who you know, is, in, is in office bossing around a bunch of big companies, right? It's a very big difference, and it's an incredibly important difference in terms of the political system you're structuring. So Donald Trump is – if he does this, is structuring an authoritarian political system. Mm. It just happens to be that if you're living in, you know, Indiana and you're at the carrier plant and all these plants have moved, you're already living under an authoritarian structure. It's just that this authoritarian structure is run by the executives at United Technology. So you're picking not between Hillary Clinton and, and Donald Trump. You're picking between Democrats who won't do anything about the fact that the United Technologies executives run your life. And Republicans, Donald Trump, who's saying that he probably is going to con you, but might do something about it. And it's not going to be necessarily good. You might not get paid well. You might not have any rights. Um, You won't have a union. But he might do something for you if it suits his fancy. That's not a democracy. It's just a different authoritarian system and one in which you may do slightly better than the one that you've been under. Mussolini did that, right? I mean, not to say that like Trump is a, is a fascist or anything, but that is the essence of fascism. What these guys did is they, they organized autocratic businesses into a, into a political government. Hmm. Not to say that that's where Trump's going, but let's just point out that there is a big difference between that and um, running a, a democratic kind of political economy that we saw with the New Deal. Yeah. Is there a chance that uh, certain big business interests or Wall Street interests will be deterred by the possibility of Trump doing to them what he does to Carrier or to 
Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's, I don't, you know, I don't have an answer, but like what is going to be really interesting is to watch whether there's a war in corporate America, right? Because, you know, some of the, some corporations are going to like it and some aren't. And Trump is going to have to agitate between disputes within the corporate world. And, you know, something that you see with like Larry Summers talking about how, you know, bossing around carrier is the death of American capitalism. You know, there's a sense in which that's a play to have the Democrats capture the disaffected big businesses and bring them into the Democratic coalition. Hmm. So the opposition to Trump can come from like really bad places as well as as good places. It's not to say that it's not that it's a bad thing to like organize disaffected big businesses. But if you're going to oppose Trump by saying we really feel like it's wrong to tell Boeing that they can't offshore jobs or carrier that they can't offshore jobs. You know, that's a that's a type of, of opposition that's not actually coming from a populist or democratic perspective. It's like saying, well, you're not doing autocracy in the right way. Right. Mm. You're not favoring the right oligarchs or whatever. It sure seems like you have a pretty bleak view of the situation for the average American worker or maybe just the manufacturing sort of industrial American worker. No, I mean, it's not just the, it's not just the manufacturing. It's not just the worker. It's all of us as citizens, right? Like what, what kind of glasses are those that you're wearing? They are Ray-Bans. Ray-Bans, right? So that's, you know, the glasses monopoly, right? I don't. Okay. So you know how there's like a lot of different brands of glasses. Yeah. There's a lot of different glasses distributors, like retailers and stuff. Those are all actually owned by one company, Hmm. Luxottica, which chooses all of the frames and all of the prices it structures that market. So the glasses that you have, I think the only one that's not owned by Luxottica is Warby Parker. I was just going to say, is Warby Parker the uh, antitrust disruptor of that? Because they're so yeah, cheap. Yeah, well, yeah and, and they have deals with all these ophthalmologists um, all over the country. So it's, but that's true, like across the board, you know, when you look at chicken farming or you look at mattresses or you look at like pharmaceuticals or telecommunications or whatever, like you have the choices, the markets that we sell our labor into, that we sell our goods into, the means over which we speak, communicate with each other, these are all organized by concentrated financial power. It's not bleak to say that. It's bleak to not recognize it. Hmm. Because the thing is, is that if you do recognize it, and you also recognize that we don't have to do things that way, and that we, the greatness of our culture, both domestically and internationally after the Second World War, that that came from standing up against this monopolized power. Hmm. We can have that again. And you're not just saying the answer is Marxism. You're not providing... No, Marxism is just another variant of like sort of an autocratic view. It's just a different one. It's just let's concentrate power in the hands of corporations, but we'll put the state on top. Yeah, right. That's not, it's not, it's not fundamentally, that's still not allowing Harvey Milk to own a camera store. Right, right. Yeah. Man, you're a beacon of depolarization shining in the wilderness, and I just like trying to suck up all the rays of light. But you're basically well, giving, we can do this again. Yeah, we we, we, we should we should continue to to chat. So you're giving like a a free market based answer to the problem of monopolies and and over corporatization. Insofar as you're saying, look, you just need to create a space for free markets to work. So sometimes people think there's a false dichotomy. It's either a bunch of regulation, big government, or free markets, small government, take stuff off the books. You know, we're going to slash the government, kind of the Ted Cruz 
view. And it seems to me you're, you're presenting a middle position, which is pass the right kind of legislation to create free markets for people to actually have a choice. I don't use the phrase free market. Okay. Um, I use the, I just talk about markets okay. because markets are political institutions. What I'm saying is that we can structure markets in any way that we want. I mean, there are physical limitations and technological limitations and so on and so forth, but how we choose to structure markets are political decisions. And we make political decisions in every market structure that we, that we design. So all of the rules, the enforcement actions, the antitrust uh, cases, the, and so on and so forth. Everything that you buy and consume, your labor, your your small business, you know, if you start a business, whether your podcast can be distributed and how it can be distributed, right. these are all political, politically determined markets where we as a society chooses how the revenue flows, the winners and losers, and those are political decisions. And what I'm saying is just be cognizant that those are political decisions and let's make political decisions to favor openness, diversity, democracy, and citizenship as opposed to Concentrated financial power. And I guess the fundamental point is that concentrated financial power is a rival to democracy, hmm. right? So you can either have – Brandeis said this, but you can either have great concentrations of wealth in the hands of a few or you can have democracy, but you can't have both. And the thing is a great concentration of wealth is not like a Scrooge McDuck jumping into a swimming pool full of gold coins, right? Like that's – people think of wealth as that, <laughs> but it's not. It's a toll booth, right? It's a, a corporation that sits on a strategic part of our society. In the case of, say, Microsoft, it was operating systems. In the case of Google, it's like, say, search. But something that people need and then takes a toll, taxes you, essentially. And that is what a great concentration of wealth is. If you want to get rid of that, right, if you want an efficient, open, democratic society, then you have to use political tools to break those bottlenecks and let people compete in markets. That's the point. Yeah. Because a free market person might say, hey, Dan wants to go to Walmart to get his socks cheaper. That's like, right. let him do it. But you're saying over the long run, when things get too concentrated in the hands of Walmart, then all of a sudden Walmart's my only choice and they can make the price whatever the hell they want to make it. The, yes, that's true. And the other thing is that I'm distinguishing between markets for goods and services and financial markets. Yeah, okay. Right. So in order to have markets for goods and services and labor and where small businesses can, you know, can compete, you, you need to control financial markets very carefully. You need to aggressively prevent mergers where mergers you know, decrease uh, competition. Yeah. And so the the sort of libertarians and the kind of neoliberal types would say, well, that's, you're inhibiting markets, right? Because financial markets, you know, if one company wants to buy another, you should allow that. It's, it's, it's the freedom, you know, there's a right and there's a freedom there. But what I'm saying is you have to make distinctions about how you're structuring markets. And if you want to have markets for goods and services that are open, then you have to really control what financiers can do. And you have to really control financial markets with a whole range of different policies. Hmm. Um, this was something that John Maynard Keynes thought as well and Brandeis. And I'm drawing off of a tradition that's not mine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there we go. Let me, let me just give you a couple of things for, for your listeners who want to learn more. So the article that I wrote in the Atlantic Online is called How the Democrats Killed Their Populist Soul. Google that. It took me a couple of years of work to really uh, come up with that. So it's like if you want the concentrate of what I'm talking about, yeah. it's there. Um, and it's, it's long, but I think it's well-written. If you want to know a lot more about the financial crisis and the political crisis that that created, 
I have a paper in the Fordham Law Review. You Google the housing crash and the end of American citizenship. That one talks about the really significant change in political economy and the ideology of the financial crisis and what we did. Um, and then if you want to know about uh, kind of how Trump is approaching business, I wrote a piece for the New York Daily News. Uh, it's, is Trump a working class hero or CEO's best friend at New York Daily News? Yeah. And then the best book on this stuff, uh, which is, you know, by a guy that I, you know, basically helped teach me most of what I know about Monopoly is called Cornered, The New Monopoly Capitalism. And it's by a guy named Barry Lynn. He runs the open markets division at New America. He's the guy who actually broke the story about Luxottica and the glasses mm. Monopoly. But um, but he's he's a genius. And then there's some really good work that, that has been done in the Washington Monthly on concentrations of power. There's a whole fascinating thing on airlines. Once you start getting into the question of how we organize our um, businesses and our commercial sector, this whole world opens up. It's fascinating and very cool. And that's why I'm an optimist, right? Because it's not that you're like, that I'm like, oh, things are so bad, right? And I'm describing a really bleak picture. Well, I don't look at it that way. I'm, I look at it and say the reason things have been bad is because we haven't been paying attention to all of this stuff. But we could, and even just a little bit, even just a little bit, because we're a thirsty person in a desert, just a little bit of water will taste like the best thing you've ever had. So there we this go. Con- that's a really good, uh, from where I'm coming from, that's a really good image for this conversation. A little bit of water in a thirsty land. Uh, Matt Stoller, thank you so much for being with me here today. We are going to have those links on the show notes up at depolarizedpodcast.com Matt's articles as well as that book cornered and Matt I I really hope that we can have you on again to either continue this conversation or maybe respond to some listener questions that come up after people hear this we got a little wily here we kind of swerved a bit but that felt right so thank you so much for your continued work and if people want to follow you on Twitter you're just at Matt Stoller with two L's. Is that Matthew, right? Matthew, Matthew Stoller, Stoller, Stoller with two L's. Yeah. M-A-T-T-H-E-W-S-T-O-L-L-E-R. Yeah. I, yeah. I follow Matt. That's how I found him. And I recommend you do as well. Thanks, man. And have a great day. All right. Thanks a lot, Dan. Talk to you later. If you guys enjoyed listening to this as much as I enjoyed having this conversation, please share this with a couple friends. That's the best way to spread the word about the podcast. Next week, we will have the incredible Dr. Eddie Glaude. He's a professor at Princeton, and he's the president of the American Association of Religion. He and I will be talking about what's going on on college campuses these days, the black civil rights movement as an antidote to safe space culture, whether or not Americans subconsciously believe that white lives are more important, and more. I kind of pushed back a lot on him in that conversation, which I taped on Monday, and I have no idea if that was wise or not, partially because I had the flu and I was on some DayQuil. But it was a really good conversation. He was very gracious with me. I think it'll be really interesting to listen back to it. That doesn't mean that it was wise, again. But uh, thank you guys for your continued support. Find me on Twitter, D-A-N-K-O-C-H, or join the Facebook group, Depolarized Podcast Discussion Group. 